Okay, well, once again, good morning. If you're watching online, glad that you're joining us that way. We know a lot of folks will check out the online version before they show up in person. We think it's so much better in person that uh, if you are checking us out, um, we hope to see you here in the room, but we are glad you're taking time to watch now or later or listen now on the podcast or later. And this morning, we, uh, we're going to start, I know it's a momentous occasion, we're going to start chapter six in the book of Luke, right? Whew. Like we're going story by story, section by section through the book of Luke each week. And we're six months into the year, we're a few months into the series, and we have made it all the way to chapter six. So, I'm, uh, yeah, it's, thank you. I'm, so, I'm glad you're excited. He's ready. He's been reading the whole, yep, yeah, good job. But our series here, it's called uh, Luke, Jesus for Everyone. And in the story we're going to look at this week, it's an episode um, that's one example of how the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were so overly focused on what they thought was the right way to do things that they completely missed the heart of God. They spent so much time trying to enforce religious behaviors and insist that others toe the line as well that they had lost the point of why they were worshipers of God in the first place. And it's easy to pick on them, but it's not just them that does this. Like, it's easy for us um, to just kind of drift off and lose the point of following Jesus, especially when we try to work on a lot of behaviors. Um, and, and here's the deal. When our primary focus, when our primary focus shifts to right religious behavior, we can lose track of God's intention for us. His intention for us is for us to live in a loving relationship with God, right? We get so focused sometimes on behavior and actions instead of our attachment, our relationship that we have to God. Now, have you ever been in a, maybe a church group or, or been under maybe the spiritual leadership of someone who they really demanded, you know, um, stern religious behaviors, things that were more than what the Bible even Teaches. Anybody been around that kind of thing? Like maybe did they enforce like, oh, hey, here's a certain dress code. Um, or is it the kind of church that said, no, 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 the only kind of thing you can have for a church are certain instruments are allowed. Um, uh, or maybe they didn't allow dancing or playing cards or watching movies. Essentially, you can't have fun. Um, anybody ever been around? Yeah, some of us. Uh, we had a little bit of that when I was growing up. In fact, in the 19. 90s, wow, every time I say that, I feel even older. Um, I went to Bible college, and the Bible college I went to had some of those elements in the mix. Um, one of the things was our dress code, uh, and that dress code included that men needed to always wear slacks, no jeans, no shorts when you're going to class or chapel, and you always had to have a shirt with a you know, fold over or whatever collar on it, which I would, they would all be horrified at me today. Um, <laughs> Um, that was just the guys, right? So now the women, if you were a woman in kind of that Pentecostal circle, man, it was even more strict. Like, skirts had to definitely be below the knee. Um, and that was a... <laughs> that was funny. That was good. Now, now that, that was actually an improvement, right? Um, because we heard stories before we got there, a few years before us, like... That women had to wear dresses that the bottom could be no more than 12 inches 
off the ground. So the dean of women, this is what we were told, she would go around with a ruler. Remember the old, she would make sure, women would have to stand up, make sure that it was no shorter than a 12 inches from the ground. Like these were just really interesting things. Now, kind of the big controversy in our day um, when we were in school, the thing we were pushing to get changed was about the length of hair. And so they finally said, okay, well, it's okay uh, for guys anyway, the length of hair for guys. It's okay for guys for their hair to, it used to just be to the collar, but now it can't go below the, you know, the cuff of your collar. Um, and so what, what I did was, okay, I grew my hair that long, and then um, it hit the limit, so I decided to let it grow long on top, check out a photo shoot from one of my bands in college. That's me on that side. Yeah, we're going to let it go up here. And it got bigger than that. We were Flock of Seagulls, if you know that era. Uh, please take that down, babe. Um, I know, it looks ridiculous. It looks ridiculous. And if there wasn't a rule around it, kind of think that I might have gone with short hair, right? Um, I mean, I have family members that would say that ever since I was really little, uh, if somebody said, here's the line, don't step over it, I would just like creep right up to that line and just stand there waiting. And if I thought nobody was looking, of course, I'd tap my toe over just to, you know, just to, does that surprise any of you about me? I didn't think so, yeah. Um, listen, I just don't like dumb rules, right? Heck, sometimes I, I don't even like good common sense rules either, but I especially don't like dumb rules. Um, and I think, Doug's opinion here, I think that Jesus was not a fan of dumb rules or senseless obligations either. However, unlike me, Jesus actually had the character to not just be a, a rebel about it. He didn't get cranky or push the envelope just to be a jerk. Um, but, but when Jesus did see religious authorities twisting God's words, when, when Jesus saw uh, religious leaders abusing their authority or acting in ways that completely misrepresented the character and the heart of God, Jesus was not afraid to confront that stuff. In fact, you know, um, whenever Jesus operated in the spirit, when he was doing kingdom of God stuff, Jesus always confronted these religious authorities. And in fact, if you've been here the past couple weeks, the related quote I pulled for this from Greg Boyd is this. He said, the toughest old wineskin in the world is an old religious wineskin. Can I get an amen on that one? <laughs> See, it's easy to lose the point of why we follow Jesus. And when our, again, our, when our primary focus shifts to right religious behavior or actions, we can really quickly start to miss the point. Because God's goal for us is not that we mindlessly follow random rules. God's goal for us is to live in relationship with him. He, he wants you to live loved and to be loved. And so when leaders, when groups or systems bring legalism to the mix, claiming that in order to be right with God, you must earn God's favor by following you know, their interpretation of the rules. And, and when those kinds of folks communicate to people that they're supposed to be discipling, that what God is most concerned with is our behaviors, when that stuff happens, it's not something that Jesus treats lightly. I mean, if there's one surefire way to irritate Jesus, it's by twisting God's words and, and misrepresenting God's heart for people. 
And, and if you have any experience with, with legalistic or shame-based religion, I got some good news for you this morning. Um, that stuff, that's not God's heart. Jesus is not legalistic. In, in fact, Jesus pushed so hard against those kinds of rigid rules and legalism that it's a big part of what upset the religious authorities and helped them plot to get Jesus eventually executed. And he knew that it would. And this brings us to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 starts actually with two different stories related to how Jesus confronted the way that many of these religious leaders had emphasized, wrongly emphasized, how the practice of Sabbath was carried out. Verse 1 says, One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking, and I'm going to stop already right there, out of the 11 verses, we're stopping the first sentence here. Now, this word Sabbath is used, uh, uh, let's see, it's 11 verses, it's used six times. So because um, not all of us are necessarily familiar with what Sabbath is, before we read the text, I want to give a real basic snapshot. This is really oversimplified. But here's just kind of five quick facts to summarize what the idea of Sabbath is, okay? So the Sabbath is, number one, it's a day of rest and restoration. Um, It it was originally designed to be taken on the seventh day uh, because after God created the world, it says on the seventh day he... He rested, right? So he rested. And so we, too, rest on the seventh day was the idea behind it. It was supposed to be a day of rest and restoration. Second quick fact here, uh, this was one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, right? So this is a part of the law of Moses, which, by the way, yes, that's a part of the old covenant, and we're under the new covenant, and we don't have time to really dive into that today. But I'm just going to leave it here. It's still, Sabbath is still a helpful practice today as well. It's not mandated, but it's very, very helpful. So uh, number three, Sabbath is for our good. It's for our good, and I'm going to talk more about that in a little bit here. Number four, Sabbath is a gift from God. I mean, I think we need like a sermon series on why this is true because we were all designed to rest from work, from striving. There's actually a ton of research done that describes the benefits of taking a Sabbath day to rest, um, to connect with God. And it's fascinating stuff that I had to cut because I don't want you to be here all day. Um, So that was the fourth one there. Fifth one, Sabbath is a reminder that God is our provider. Like, we don't trust our efforts to help us get through. Um, We have to trust that God will provide even when, even if we stop to rest one day a week. I have some great stories about that another time. Um, Personally, uh, Heidi and I, we try to Sabbath uh, once, once a week, we take um, Friday, which is why you can't reach me. Like, I'm trying to unplug uh, from all the pressure and any kind of work, and what I'm trying to do is, is plug into my source so that God will renew and refresh and re-energize me. So those are five quick facts on the Sabbath. We could have done a whole bunch more, but now with that kind of in mind, um, historically, here's how Sabbath worked. Historically, after... All of these laws were given in the law of Moses, Ten Commandments, and some others. Um, And then eventually, the Jewish people, it developed into Judaism. There were eventually Jewish rabbis. They came into the picture. What happened is they would take the the law that God gave uh, through Moses, the Mosaic law, and because they wanted to take great pains to take every word of God seriously, they wanted to interpret and make sure they're following these commandments properly, um, which is a good thing, 
But sometimes their application of what it meant um, for our example today, we'll stick to the Sabbath one, for, for us to remember and keep the Sabbath day holy, their application could get really out of whack. So much so that by the time Jesus shows up 1,400 years after Moses, uh, 1,400 years of developing and refining and interpreting and adding to the commandment of Sabbath, uh, by the time Jesus shows up, Sabbath had nearly become an an idol. Um, Even with good intentions and a sincere desire that they had to obey the commands God had given us. By the time Jesus shows up, they had added so much to it that they had lost the point. For example, here's just kind of some of the things that they wrote around Sabbath because they're trying to figure out, okay, so what do you do with this or this or that or the other thing, right? So, so here's one. Um, okay, if you can't work on the Sabbath, then how far are you allowed to walk since walking might be considered working? So they came up with an answer for this, and the answer was, well, you can walk as far as the distance from your home to the synagogue. If you walk any farther than that, then you are violating Sabbath. Um, So then one brilliant person said, well, what about walking back home, right? Okay, fine. Like, they had to add, like, every detail. Like, oh, yeah, okay, it's the distance back home as well. Like, it was was pretty wild. Um, Another one that I thought was super fascinating was, okay, well, well, what if somebody has an emergency or really needs help, but it's the Sabbath? Like, like, what if somebody's hanging from a cliff? Are you allowed to save them? Uh, or do you have to wait a day and hope that they can hang on till the next day, right? And I'm not, and I'm not kidding. Like, this, I mean, it is funny, but <laughs> they parsed these rules so tightly that they said, yes, yes, you can save a life if somebody's drowning. You can save them. But, they said, we're going to draw the line right there. You can save a life, but you are not allowed to offer help. There's no medical attention that can be offered on the Sabbath. And I just go, like, what? How did they get that, right? Why why was that the line? I mean, again, for me, like, it just seems like a dumb rule. But again, remember, (laughs) when, when the primary focus shifts to right religious behavior we quickly lose track of God's intention and we forget that what he wants is to have this loving relationship with him. And and Jesus is about to confront that here in Luke chapter 6. In fact, we'll skip to Luke uh, 6, verse 6, and we'll come back to the first section in a minute. Luke 6, verse 6 says, On another Sabbath, he, Jesus, went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Okay, we'll pause for a second. So it's the Sabbath. It's the day of rest. They go to, you know, their version of church. And there's a man there. He's got the shriveled hand. And Luke tells us already, like, Jesus had kind of a reputation for upsetting the religious elite by challenging their messed up priorities, their interpretations of the good things that God had commanded because they'd lost the point. They know Jesus is prone to doing this, so they're watching close. They're watching close to see, is Jesus going to just play nice, play by the rules this time? Or is he really that bent that right in front of us he would do such a thing And try to prove us wrong. So, verse 8. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with shriveled hand, 
And by the way, imagine being this guy. Like, you just show up for church. You don't know Jesus is going to be there. You're kind of probably sitting near the back, covering your hand. And Jesus is like, hey, dude, <laughs> right? Come here. Come here. He's like, Jesus, can you pray for me after the service? That would be so much better. I'll take it, right? <laughs> so he got up. He stood there. Then Jesus says, not to the man, he says to them, so you got the man standing up next to him, Jesus says to them, the religious leaders, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? Almost sounds like a trick question, right? Right? To do good or do evil? And then I kind of picture him pausing, there's silence, and then I picture him saying, to save life or destroy it? Now, again, we'll just pause here for a second. You guys, Jesus is picking a fight here. Like, he's, he's pressing the point, which, by the way, please hear me. That is not his mode with anyone but with stubborn religious leaders. Like, seriously, Jesus, you read the Bible. Jesus only gets confrontative when religious people twist God's word and harm people, which I, we just have to remember that, you guys. We have to remember that. Because when we're dealing with somebody who doesn't know God, when we deal with non-believers or maybe people who act like they're our political enemies, we don't get permission to be argumentative jerks. The only time that we get to be that confrontative, if we're following Jesus, is, is when, when we are facing maybe the same kinds of people he did, and even we're not Jesus, so it's very, we gotta parse that one very carefully as well, right? But Jesus saves his fight for the religious, the proud, these arrogant legalists, that's who he goes after. Just read through the Gospels, that's who he goes after. Oh, by the way, and, and when this same story is told in the Gospel of Mark, uh, it's told two different, three different places, but in the Gospel of Mark, he adds one little detail that's not in the Luke version. Um, Mark 3, verse 4 says right here, when Jesus stands up in front and asks those questions, says, Jesus looked around at them in anger. Now, if you're somebody who's here and you are, you're just not sure about where you are at, if you want to be a follower of Jesus or not, you're maybe just deciding, I want you to notice, because uh, maybe you're not sure because of how religious people have acted. I'm with you. I get it. I'm sorry. I wish it wasn't that way. But if you're wondering, I want you to notice this detail here uh, about Jesus. How does your heavenly father respond to religious people that, that apply God's commandments in ways that hurt people. Notice right here, how does Jesus respond when religious people invoke God's name to harm, to control, to demean, to shame other people? Mark says right here, Jesus looked around in anger. I mean... <laughs> Jesus is angry, and he's angry at the religious leaders because they were twisting his father's words. They were presenting this picture of God that did not reflect the true heart of God for human beings. And if there's one sure way to irritate Jesus, again, you just twist God's words, misrepresent God's heart. And, and I got to tell you, when I see Jesus respond this way, it just makes me want to follow Jesus even more. So if you've seen people do that, and it's pushed you away from God, I just want you to just look at Jesus and how he responds, you guys. Just look at Jesus. Back to Luke 6, verse 10. So he looked 
around at them all in anger, according to Mark. And then said to the man, dude is still standing here, right? Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. Just call time out on the story. Imagine this. Like, can you, like, if I was there, I'd be like, whoa. Like, even if I was a doubter, I'd be like, wow, holy, this is amazing, right? Next word, but, Luke tells us, but the Pharisees, the teachers of the law were, they weren't in awe, they were furious. They began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. I mean, what a contrast, you know. On the one hand, get it, the guy's hand, this one, okay, (laughs) bad, that's bad, on the one hand, thank you, thank you. <laughs> All right, on the one side of things, yeah, the, guy, the guy's hand gets healed, completely restored, right before their eyes. Like, they all saw it happen, right? They saw an actual miracle. But their hearts were so hard, they were so stubborn, they clung so tightly to their strong opinions, their rigid traditions, that witnessing a miracle didn't phase them, didn't even matter. Their response was not, Whoa, wow, you know what? Maybe Jesus is right. Maybe we need to reconsider the interpretations we've been basing our religious practice on. No, their response was to get pissed at Jesus for doing a miracle, (laughs) like for healing a guy in need, for forever changing his future. (sighs) Like they were so mad. And this is where, according to Mark's gospel, um, he adds another detail on this too. They actually started plotting with their own enemies. The Pharisees and the followers of Herod hated each other, but they were so mad at Jesus that they pulled in the Herodians, Herod's followers, to try and plot how to get rid of Jesus. That's how intense their contempt was. You know, People sometimes read this passage or read passages about what Jesus says about the Sabbath. And, you know, some people go, okay, that means that Jesus is now against Sabbath. But nothing could be further from the truth. Again, I wish we could spend some weeks unpacking that. And at some point, we probably will. But what Jesus is against here is the twisted application of Sabbath that elevated Sabbath rules over the well-being of people. See, Sabbath is for our good. And you know what would be good for this guy with the withered hand? Like, to, to have a fully functioning hand, right? That would be good. That would align with God's good intentions for the gift of Sabbath. So Jesus broke their rules, their dumb made-up rules that missed the point, and he healed this man because God loves people. God loves you. God's goal is not for us to mindlessly follow random rules. No, no. God created us for love, and he wants you to know Love and live loved and then be love. Now let's look at the other Sabbath story that happened right before this one. So go up to verse 1. Telling them out of order this week, that's all right. Um, Verse 1. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. His disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees, so these are the religious leaders, they asked, why are, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? So again, his guys, they're really hungry, but you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. 
And just let me be fair to the Pharisees. Not every Pharisee said that doing that kind of thing would have, um, you know, if you're picking grain to eat, they would say, well, that's not breaking Sabbath. Some would say that, but these guys, these guys did say that that was breaking Sabbath, right? So verse 3, Jesus answered them, and he answers them here in verse 3 by telling a story that all of them would have known from the time of David, one of the revered heroes in Israel's history. It's a story, if you want to read the whole thing later, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Jesus says, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and took the consecrated bread. And he ate what is lawful only for the priest to eat. And then he gave some to his companions. So Jesus right here, just he's drawing some comparisons to his guys, right? They're hungry too. They need to eat. And even though it's Sabbath, God is not more concerned about them following some rules than he's concerned about them. Their well-being does not come beneath um, what has been set out there about the consecrated bread. Verse 5, then Jesus, and this is where he really gets in trouble, then Jesus said to them, the son of man, which is a, a, a term that Jesus uses for himself that hints it hints that he's the Messiah, because right now he's not telling anybody yet. He's just hinting. The son of man, he said, is Lord of the Sabbath. Right? He's saying the Sabbath, listen, yeah, the Sabbath is a big deal, but it's not a bigger deal than me, and I care for people. That's the heart of God, people. And he might be saying... You know, if you, if you guys just stopped overanalyzing every nitpicky detail about Sabbath, if you opened your eyes to what's right in front of you right now, me, Jesus would say, you'd be blown away by seeing Jesus, that there's something more important than figuring out the nuances of behavior. And Jesus, I think, would say to them, and if you would trust me, I could help you sort out your priorities and actually free you from the knots that you've bound yourself up in and bound up the people with. Check out this, um, when the Gospel of Mark, again, tells this same story that Luke's telling here, Mark includes a line, again, that for me is super helpful. Mark 2, 28, he says the same line as Luke's uh, 6, 5, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. But look at the line that Jesus says before that in verse 27 of Mark 2. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, people, not man for the Sabbath. And when Jesus said this, again, we're kind of like, yeah, whatever, I don't, what does that mean? But back then in that day, I guarantee you that when Jesus said that, there was a gasp in the crowd. And it's part of, again, why the religious leaders turned on him so quickly. The Sabbath was made for man, for people, not people for the Sabbath. And again, we're kind of like, what? Like, what's, what, okay, what's the big deal? Listen, for them, this was, a, this was a paradigm shift of epic proportions. And the bottom line for what Jesus is saying here is that the well-being of people is more important than the rigid way y'all are trying to follow Sabbath. See, the Sabbath was made for your benefit as a gift. You weren't just created to try and follow Sabbath. So Sabbath would have some followers and observers. That's not why you were created. And I think even though I just said what I said right there, um, some of you might be like, Doug, Doug, listen, I, I don't even know for sure what you're talking about, Doug. So let me try to put this in um, more modern terminology, uh, an idea that uh, I kind of stole and adapted from a guy named Andy Stanley. Um, 
here's the statement. Think of it this way. Nobody has children just so there will be someone to play with the toys. (laughs) Right? Let me say it again. Like, Like, you know, couples aren't like, well, you know, we got all these toys. And there's nobody playing with these toys. Hey, you know what, babe? We should have children, right? I'm pretty sure that our couples at Hope who are expecting, Devin and Rachel, they just welcomed baby Evelyn last week. And then there's two, at least two more babies that I know of who are coming in the next few months. I'm pretty sure Sam and Liz or maybe Miranda and Jake, they didn't, you guys didn't probably just wake up and, and look at a pile of toys in your house and go, you know, honey, we need to get ourselves a kid so the toys won't be bored, right? Sam's actually shrugging, like, maybe, okay. (laughs) Now, nobody does that because because (laughs) toys are for the benefit of children, not the other way around. So, So back to the point Jesus was making, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. God didn't create a bunch of people just so there'd be somebody that could keep this rule he made up. No, no, no. Again, God created you for love, to know love, and to live loved. And I think that maybe if you, some of you, if you think about this truth right there, um, for some of you, that might be something that would shift some categories and assumptions that you have. Uh, and maybe because of some of the religious teachers that you have heard before emphasize, you know, perfect behavior, like it's the most important thing to God. You know, people that say, hey, get it right, try harder, be more committed, follow our rules, believe the right thing, behave the right way. Maybe, maybe that's what you've heard and thought. That's the most important thing to God. And listen, <laughs> believing the right thing, yeah, yeah, it is, it's important It's better than believing the wrong thing, okay? Um, Doing the right thing, it's better than doing the wrong thing. But when it comes to you and God, you need to know God loves you more than God loves the commands he created. God created you for love, to live, love, and be loved. God didn't go, well, I made up all these rules, so I guess I better create some people to go, you know, follow the rules. So he'd just stay busy, you know, blessing some and smiting others. Um, No, I mean, he didn't say, hey, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't be captive to sexual sin. He didn't say that stuff just to take away our fun. He didn't set up principles like honor the Sabbath just to test us. And by the way, I just, I have to add this kind of, you know, otherwise it could be pastoral malpractice here. Um, when I say what I'm saying there about, you know, God loves people more than he loves commandments, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, well, since God loves people more than he loves commandments, therefore it's all optional and obedience doesn't matter. No, 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 I'm not saying that at all. Again, remember the intention, the heart of God behind any rule, any commandment, any guideline that he gives, the intention, the heart behind it is that God loves us. He's for us. So if there's a commandment, when God gives a, hey, walk this way and not that way, avoid that, go there. If God calls something a sin, there's a reason for it. It's not just to keep us in line. It's not just so we have, no, here's a test to prove your allegiance to God. It's not random. None of that stuff's random. It's for our good because God loves us and is for us. And, and, and therefore, by doing or not doing what God 
instructs us to do, then we can walk, we can walk in the path toward life. So, so any commands, um, and again, I'm, I'm going to stick with the New Testament, New Covenant here for now on that, because again, there's so much more discussion. So don't start parsing out Leviticus with this. <laughs> Let's, um, we can do that another time. But any commands, any, any rule, anything from God, especially in the moral category, um, they're, they're out of love. God gives those out of love in order to help us navigate a very complex life in a very complex world. And so learning to trust when we see things, even when we don't understand them, that his intentions, his instructions are for our good. So yeah, it's important. But, but, but again, now I said all that and I'm saying, <laughs> don't lose track uh, like the Pharisees did. Uh, don't start sliding into legalism. Don't, just don't spend all your energy now trying to do behavior modification or sin management and strict rule following. Because when we get our focus over there on that, we lose the point. And the point is that God loves people. God loves you. God's goal is, again, not for us to mindlessly follow random rules. God didn't just create us so that somebody could keep the rules that he made up, right? No, God created you for love, to know his love, to live loved, and to be love. I probably said that sentence seven times because I'm really hoping it sticks. <laughs> I'm hoping it sticks. And I have to tell you, I really love the stories that we looked at today in Luke 6. And I like to sometimes just imagine, like I want to think back and just, you know, let my mind float back 2,000 years to when this happened. And try to imagine maybe how the scenes of these stories played out and, and realize that, that before Jesus even got to this scene, he knew. He saw how the heart behind observing Sabbath had gotten distorted. He saw how lost it had gotten when he looked at the people. And then I think of the first story with his disciples plucking grain and trying to eat because they're hungry. I think of how grateful that his disciples had to be that when they were hungry, he actually cared. It mattered to him. Like he knew it was important for them to eat. He didn't hesitate to correct the religious practices of the day because they'd gotten off course. The people weren't created just so Sabbath would be rigidly obeyed. No, no, again, Sabbath was created for the good of people. And, and when that was backwards, um, when it was backwards, it left everyone with this distorted view of God's heart for people. Like God's this control freak. And what God really cares about is this hyper-vigilant rule following. And then I think to the story just kind of picture and imagine behind the scenes, Jesus with this guy. Jesus walks in a synagogue. Here's a guy with a maimed hand. And then I picture and see Jesus getting irritated, <laughs> then getting angry with these religious leaders who had twisted God's word and painted this stern, uncaring picture of a father God. They were insinuating that God was the kind of heartless father who cared more about their strict interpretation of Sabbath than, than, than being the kind of father who cared more about this man who God wanted to heal. And I just picture like all that go down and just... <laughs> Jesus, I picture Jesus right in front of all these religious leaders, and he's, he knows they're upset. He knows he's being watched, but he refuses to play nice. He refuses to placate 
these powerful religious people. And when I think of all Jesus did and how he did this, I just love Jesus. I just love Jesus. Like, I love that he didn't play, play along with these religious practices that had gotten off track. He didn't do that. He came to set the captives free, to heal the broken, to proclaim that the favor of God had arrived in and through him. And that's why he does what he does. And I just see those things. I read these stories, and I just love Jesus because he's so, so good. And he is so for you. He's not sitting, you guys, he's not sitting on some cold throne, just scrutinizing your every action, just waiting for you to screw up so he can come and judge you and shame you. And I have to tell you, if you've been given the impression that God is harsh, cold, uncaring, sitting around waiting to judge and condemn people, if someone led you to believe that God made up just a bunch of random rules just to test you, just to see if you'd obey. And if you didn't know that any commandment, any guidance from God was surely and only out of his love and care for you because he knows how you're wired. He knows the best way for your life to be nurtured and to flourish. But, but if some religious leader imposed and enforced a view of God that's just looking for reasons to damn you to hell, hear me, hear me clearly. That picture of our God is a lie. It's a lie. And again, think of the posture of Jesus toward the lies that were being told and I believe the lies that you have been told. Like any lie that causes you to be afraid of God. Like just imagine back to the synagogue where Jesus is in front of these lying, misleading leaders. Just picture, just picture in your life Jesus looking around like he did back then, looking around at those false teachers. Can you see it? Maybe the false teachers in your life, Jesus looking around at them. Imagine it. I see him. When I imagine this, just like he was when he healed in the synagogue. And when I see him, I see he's, he's angry. But he's not angry at you. He's angry at the lies told to you. Lies that have crippled you and shamed you and made you afraid to really trust yourself to God. And while I can picture and see his anger, his irritation toward the lies and the liars, I want you to know this. What his posture is towards you is that, is that for you, he holds a deep love, a deep compassion, and an endless supply of grace. And he wants to set you free. See, Jesus' heart for you it wants you to trust that, yes, you are. You are deeply loved by him, that you are never alone. Jesus wants you to receive his love, his grace, and his mercy. And I just want you to even wonder right now, when Jesus looks at you, where you are right now, especially if you've been lied to and given this false picture of who God is and what God wants, just imagine Jesus looking at you, what, what does he see? 
What does he see when he looks at you? Some of you instantly go to disappointment, shame, fear. Let let, let that go. Let that go. Because I believe maybe God is saying to some of us, I think he would say this to all of us, that he's looking, Jesus sees you and says, there you are. (laughs) There you are. I've been looking for you. I hear him saying, I want to. I want you to know that I love you. Jesus wants you to know. He's saying, I love you so much. I want to shower you with my grace, with my love. I want you to know the freedom that comes from trusting me and from trusting that when you walk in the path I lay out, you're walking in the path of love. When you trust me, when you follow me, you'll experience a love, a peace, a freedom like you never imagined was possible. I believe Jesus wants several of us to let that sink in. That's his posture for you. You guys, when I got set free from the shame-based religion of striving that I lived under in my earlier years especially, when that happened, I finally realized why the gospel of Jesus Christ was actually good news And it healed my heart. And it's still healing my heart today. As the worship team comes, here's a question for us. Two questions on the screen that I'd love for you to take with you. Let it start today. These are questions that I'm going to be taking with me as we take the next few weeks on a break, but I want to leave these questions with you as well. Here's the questions. So where do you need healing today? Where do you need healing today? And maybe a specific one is this. What part of your image of God needs to be healed and restored today? Where do you need God to come? Maybe repaint the picture so that you can trust that his heart for you is a heart of love. That you could trust that you matter to him. That you could trust that he, his way is the way that will lead you on the path to real life, life to the full. Where do you need healing today? Where does your Story, what part of your story, what part of your image of God needs to be healed and restored? Holy Spirit, I pray. Would you come right now? Will you move in our hearts? Will you bring healing? Will you reveal to us the lies we've believed, lies that have kept us from knowing the deep love you have for us, from knowing your intentions for us, your heart for us? Holy Spirit, will you burn away every veil and every blinder that has been placed over the hearts and minds of each of us because because of lies that distorted the true 
Jesus. And Jesus, help us see you. Help us trust you. Help us know the heart of our Father God and to lean into that. Jesus, you came to free us from sin, from shame. I pray that we would walk in the freedom that you've provided.